It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. joining us for a Tuesday edition of our podcast. Our guest today is someone I truly enjoy listening to and talking with, probably more listening to than talking with, because when you talk to someone, they realize that you really don't know that much. You you don't really know that much about what you're talking about. I mean, you can kind of fake it while you're listening. It's hard for me to fake it while I'm actually in a conversation. He's a legal scholar. Uh, I was a you know, courtroom lawyer, country courtroom lawyer. He's a true legal scholar. But not just having a wonderful legal mind, you have to be able to translate it into practical words so a jury or an audience or a podcast audience can can understand it. Um, he also sees this intersection, a collision sometimes, but an intersection that occurs between law and politics he is the professor, as I call him, Jonathan Turley. Welcome, Professor. I am so grateful to you for being with us. Well, you're very kind, Trey. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you. We're going to start where else in the courtroom. And I view you as someone who is equally proficient in civil and criminal law. So I, w- I won't know whether the answers to any of your civil questions are accurate or not. I don't. I won't know if they are or not. But if I ask you one that's outside your area of expertise, you just tell me. I want to start in the New York civil courtroom. The president's expected to testify this week. His children, some of them have already testified. What are the allegations precisely, the complaint, if you will, against the Trumps, the Trump business, and what realistic exposure does the former president have? Well, first of all, as you noted, Trey, this is a civil case. So his exposure is financial, it's economic, but it can be quite severe. It's You have a New York attorney general uh, who is trying to basically liquidate his companies in New York and uh, bar him from being able to do business in New York. Uh, that's quite a a turn of events. Trump is, of course, an iconic name in New York, helped build many of the most iconic structures in New York, or at least many of them. Uh, what's at the base of this lawsuit is uh, a law that I have never uh, liked. Uh, it is a law that is almost unique to New York. It allows the attorney general to sue Trump for inflating the value of his companies, even though there's no clear victim here. Uh, there's no evidence that anyone lost money. Uh, these valuations occurred in papers that expressly stated that uh, the bank should not rely on their estimates and that they leave it to the bank to come up with their own valuation of the property. But in New York, you don't need to have actual victims. No one has to 
actually lose money uh, to uh, allow this type of lawsuit. And you combine that with an attorney general uh, for the state, uh, Ms. James, who ran on the pledge that she would bag Donald Trump. She never said what for. She just ran on the pledge that she would get him. And so the combination of this overbroad law and uh, this prosecutor um, is really a one-two punch for, for Trump. Now, you also have a judge who's obviously uh, not happy with Trump, seems quite antagonistic uh, at various points in this hearing. So what could happen is that he could be facing an effective liquidation or bar from business in New York. I personally just think that people of good faith should be able to look at this and say, now, come on. I can understand that he overvalued his property. There's evidence here that uh, some of the property was overvalued. That's not uncommon in New York, particularly in the real estate business. But I can see you know, the imposition of a fine, but... This idea that you're going to hit him with this massive uh, fine and a bar from business in New York really sort of captures the rage of our time. Is the argument, Professor, I mean, because you raise, I mean, that almost, you know, no harm, no foul. Is the argument that he received like more favorable interest rates on loans because of the way he valued it or some? tax benefit. I mean, you're right. People usually lie about how much they weigh. They sometimes lie about what they're worth or what their stuff is worth. Yeah. And the thing is, he's not being charged with a tax violation. You would think that, you know, the most serious type of allegation is that you undervalued property so you can get out of taxes. And that can be a serious civil or criminal manner. Uh, he's not. They're using this New York law to say that he got advantages, but they're sort of short on what those advantages are because these banks actually made money. So it's not like this was a zero sum game where he made a buck that the banks did not. Uh, the banks did not complain about uh, these valuations. Now, I remember years ago when I was uh, working for a different network, uh, they sent me some of Trump's uh, papers and it was a, a filing with a bank and asked me if I thought there was any problems with this. And I, I got to this one list where uh, his company sent in uh, his value. And looking at the, the number, I, I, I sort of guffawed because it was I can't even remember, but it was like $13 billion or something like that. It was, I, I, the number is not important, but the funny thing is when I went down the list, I was going you know, through the property, and then there was this line that said um, reputation brand, and, and he made that $3 billion. And I, I remember sort of, sort of being taken aback by the audacity of that, but also by the curious legal position of that because he was being open about how he got to that figure the the, the money that i thought was over the top in value was basically the three billion dollars he put on his brand but he was open to the bank about it he basically said i'm the mcdonald's of real estate i i have the the name trump has a value um so is that fraud no i i told the network that had me review it it's not fraud. He, you could disagree with it, but that's what he what he put down. Now, what James is saying is that, well, all these figures were just inflated beyond what anyone would accept. Well, OK, but 
This is the problem with the New York law. You know, most laws require there to be a victim. You and I are about the same age. There was a uh, ABC sports program spanning the globe. Uh, do you remember that? They would show they showed a skier actually off course. Uh, <laughs> horrible. I'm all, we're going to span the courtroom. So, I mean, we're going to go from a New York civil courtroom. We're going to go down to Florida. The federal judge in Florida has signaled in that national defense material documents case that it may not go to trial before the election after all. And, of course, our friends in the media right on cue immediately accuse her of covering for him. I mean, I, I mean, continuances and postponements are not unusual in, in court. But what do you make of that? It seemed like an ambitious schedule anyway when she first set the trial date. This I didn't think it could be done by then, but. What do you think about it? It was ambitious. In fact, when the trial day was set, I said I didn't think that it would hold. And the reason is that, you know, I've been lead counsel in national security cases and also the only cleared counsel in, in some of these cases. Uh, dealing with classified information is like invading Russia in winter. I mean, it is everything slows down. And uh, as someone who has dealt with a lot of classified material in the criminal case, I could not imagine how you could meet that schedule. But, you know, it's it's a very weird thing that people are criticizing here, because if you compare that to the D.C. trial where Judge Chunkin basically shoehorned her trial right before the Super Tuesday election and the media was thrilled. Um, it's I find that much, much more disturbing, you know, that you have these judges who are daisy chaining trials from now until the inauguration. And the question is, why? You know, well, why is it so necessary to to put these end to end uh, until the election? And so I think that the federal judge in Florida is saying, look, you know, if, if I've if we're being delayed, then I'm going to do what I do in other cases. You know, one of the concerns, I think, for the media is that Florida is the strongest case against Trump. I mean, there there is established law there. There's a lot of damaging testimony. It's the strongest play of all of these cases. But if it occurs after Trump is elected uh, or reelected, he can pardon himself. He could even pardon himself before trial is held, and Smith would never see a jury. You and I know that. I think our listeners no, he cannot pardon himself in Georgia. We'll say for another moment the whole supremacy, the reality that you can pardon yourself for federal crimes. But I, well, I, I'll, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think he can pardon himself for state crime. No, he can't pardon himself for state crime. Some professors believe or experts believe he can't pardon himself in federal crimes. I just don't see that as is plausible. The, the, the United States Constitution says no, it makes no limits on, on the pardon power. And I don't think you can just read one in. Uh, it's not that it's a good idea, but I don't see how it's barred. We're going to take a quick break. More of my interview with the professor. Jonathan Turley is next. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. All right. So, Georgia, 
We're seeing some guilty pleas. I think one was a misdemeanor. Their their probation sentences, you know, as a former prosecutor, I don't get that fired up over them. The media talks about all these witnesses. I mean, I find it amazing. You know, two weeks ago, you wouldn't have believed a single thing they said. Now, all of a sudden, they're the most credible witnesses in the world. But how do you see Georgia shaking out with the defendants beginning to plead? Well, as usual, I was a bit mystified by my counterparts uh, on other networks because all of them were saying, this is it. You know, it's one more uh, bombshell storyline that now Trump is sunk. The circle is closing. As a criminal defense attorney, I don't see that. I mean, these people took pleas to no jail time pleas. Uh, They pled to misdemeanors uh, in the case of Sidney Powell that would have been hard to defend against, which is unauthorized access to election areas, for example. Uh, But all of these pleas allowed them to keep their licenses, avoid jail. But what none of them pleaded to was racketeering. None of them pleaded to something that was this overarching conspiracy. Uh, The closest was Chesborough, who uh, admitted that he he filed false statements. Uh, But uh, his own attorney said he doesn't see anything in his client's uh, testimony that would, would necessarily threaten Trump. So I think people are saying a lot about that. But I just wrote a, a, a an opinion piece uh, uh, this weekend, which said that these cases are going to present a really weird argument, because even if these te- these lawyers testify or even if they they don't and the prosecutors use their pleas, the suggestion is that somehow Trump committed a crime because he listened to his lawyers. It's like saying, how dare you listen to me? Now, I disagreed with these attorneys. I disagreed with them at the time. I thought they were wrong about what they were saying about the law. But Trump, and, and there's no question that Trump was looking for lawyers that supported his theory, <laughs> but but he found them. I mean, he found them by the gross. And they and they said, no, you've got a legal basis, factual and uh, both factual and legal basis for these claims. Is that now a crime? Because I can tell you an endless list of election challenges that were baseless. I mean, in 2016, people like Jamie Raskin and others opposed the certification of Donald Trump without any factual legal basis. You know, after the uh, last presidential election, uh, Mark Elias, who is the Democratic lawyer responsible for the uh, Steele dossier, uh, he was the Clinton's campaign uh, general counsel. Um, he challenged of a, a Republican win in New York, suggesting that those machines effectively flipped the result. Nobody suggested that those people would should be charged criminally. Um, those challenges were set aside because they were meritless. Oh, Mark Elias, I had the pleasure one time of uh, of deposing him uh, in 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 conjunction with said. Uh, by the way, it is very hard to depose a lawyer, as you probably can imagine. Maybe you have done it. I have. Right, you and you and I share, apparently, I learned this morning, a love of the Odyssey. Odysseus. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't have a big social media presence. It hurts my feelings to go on social media and see what's out there. But you have you have a tremendous following. And I happen to notice that you were making reference Odysseus. If I, if I recall correctly, ordered his men to tie him to the mast of the ship 
allow him to listen to the sirens, but not steer the ship toward the sirens. I think John Stuart Mill actually wrote about that kind of a fascinating liberty conversation, whether or not you have the right to give up your liberty. He said, tie me to the mast and don't untie me no matter what. You drew a connection between the sirens and Jack Smith and Fannie Willis. What was that connection? Well, it's basically that they have a weird criminal version of the sirens that if you're lured by bad lawyering, uh, you go to your ruin. And it's not clear how they're going to determine where the line is drawn there, because Jack Smith admits in his filings that much of what Trump said early on about the election results was protected speech. He just says at some point it became a criminal conspiracy. But you can read his filings over and over again, and he doesn't say when he crossed that line. And so if you believe that someone crossed the Rubicon into the criminal code, you should be able to point at it on the map where the river is. And he doesn't. He just says that at some point, Trump couldn't possibly have believed what he was saying. Well, that's a very dangerous argument, but it's even more dangerous when you have his attorney saying you have every right and basis to do that. And this isn't conjecture. It's not like. Uh, Bankman Freed, who made the argument that his lawyers made him do it, he couldn't remember any circumstance or piece of advice. In Trump's case, his lawyers were appearing every day in public making these arguments. So it's not like he's making it up. So the question is, in the future, when a client you know, follows what turns out to be bad legal advice. Is it now just a a criminal matter or it's up to the discretion of Jack Smith when some will go to jail and some will go home? All right. I got four more topics I want to address with you, and then I am going to go rob a Brinks truck so I can afford your hourly rate. (laughs) That may not do it. I may need to do more than one gag orders. Professor, I I do not see the wisdom in uh, like attacking judges, prosecutors. I just I never thought it was like really smart to insult a judge. However, former president has a different take on it. When are gag orders appropriate? And where are we with the I guess the one in D.C. is the gag order that's getting the most amount of attention? Well, when the gag order in D.C. was approved, I wrote a piece saying that it was unconstitutional. I still believe that. Uh, What's interesting is recently the ACLU joined in on, on that conclusion and said, in their view, it is unconstitutional, even though they are fierce critics of the president. Um, it's in my view, everything is wrong with that order, uh, except for the criticism of the court staff. Uh, or any particular juror, which is unlikely. But with the exception of that, to say that you can't criticize the prosecutor uh, or perhaps the judge, I think is a huge mistake, and I think it violates the First Amendment. Um, there, there's, and Jack Smith is actually seeking an expansion of what I think is already an unconstitutional order. He wants to treat any statement made by Trump about any witness 
uh, as akin to witness tampering, as akin to communicating to intimidate a witness. Um, none of that sits well with the First Amendment. You know, Judge Shutkin insisted, and so did Smith, that this trial would go forward just before the Super Tuesday. That means that this trial and the other cases are going to be the the subject of this coming election. Much of this election will turn on whether people believe that there's a weaponization of a criminal justice system. And everyone is going to talk about it, except Donald Trump. He's the only one who can has limits. I mean, he can talk generally, but not specifically about allegations from witnesses. Um, it is, in my view, it is just too broad and too vague. Uh, and so we'll see if that's overturned. Now, I do think that Trump, you know, attacking, for example, the clerk in the New York uh, courtroom uh, is a bridge too far. I, I think that he has often uh, engaged in reckless rhetoric and it has hurt him. It, it's hurt him with courts. It's hurt him with a lot of voters. And, you know, I know attorneys have tried desperately to get him to dial it back a, a, a bit. You know, it's not that the criticism of these cases is unwarranted. I understand his need to do that. But when you start to attack clerks and court staff, I think the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court are likely to support the gag. But that's not what we're talking about on the D.C. case. The D.C. case, I think, uh, is, is in my view, unconstitutional. And I'm hoping that the court will find that. Now, by the way, the, the D.C. Circuit is a very liberal panel uh, of judges. So we'll see what they say. But that could ultimately go to the Supreme Court. All right. Assume I'm a non-lawyer and I am listening and I am sitting there saying, I wish I could ask Professor Turley why a judge would be within bounds, but the jury would be out of bounds. Well, to attack jury members uh, or by name or a clerk by name, I think mo many would say is beyond the pale because the, the judge does need to preserve the security and integrity of the courtroom. Uh, but also those are the types of attacks that are gratuitous. Uh, I think that it, that criticizing judges for their decisions should be fair game. I mean, that the judges should not be immune from that. Uh, but uh, I think that a lot of judges will look at attacks on clerks and any any individual jurors uh, as affecting the trial. But one of the things to keep in mind when you look at these is that usually gag orders are about preserving and protecting the jury pool because we have laws that make it a crime to intimidate witnesses. So if he picks up the phone or sends a third party to go threaten Michael Pence, he can be criminally charged. But usually gag orders are designed for the stuff not covered by the criminal code to protect uh, the integrity of the jury pool, to make sure we have an unbiased jury pool. Well, that ship has sailed. I mean, you, you, you set a trial before the election. Everyone's going to be talking about this and it's going to be loud and it's going to be angry. So you're just gagging one guy who happens to be the leading candidate for the presidency in an election where your trial is one of the key issues. Yeah, I, I'm sitting here smiling to myself. I, the, the the former president sent out a tweet after there were some media reports that his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was cooperating. And it was kind of a meandering tweet. I mean, I, I, I got the gist of it. But but to say that that was like threatening, I, I didn't see a threat in it. I saw like a closing argument about the credibility of a witness. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. 
Two more things I got to ask you about impeachment. It seems to me that we are in the realm where if the president is in another party from the House majority, we are going to impeach him or her. Maybe I'm an alarmist. Maybe that it just seems that we're in this tit for tat kind of realm. How do you see impeachment? What should it be reserved for? And do you think we're in a kind of a a stage where we're kind of lowering the bar for what impeachment is? Well, I do worry about the tit for tat uh, problem, Trey. You know, when I testified in the Trump impeachment, I warned the Democrats that what they were doing was destroying uh, the standard of impeachment. In the first impeachment, they used uh, a single hearing, just one hearing in the judiciary. In my view, unsupported claims. And I beseeched them to do what had been done in the past and allow the president to respond to all these, but also to hold serious hearings in judiciary. Uh, they didn't. And then the second impeachment, they went even further. They didn't have any hearing. Uh, they used what I called at the time a snap impeachment. They just threw it on the floor. Um, that did a lot of damage. Now, having said that, I testified at the Biden impeachment, the first Biden impeachment hearing, and I believe that the Republicans are doing it right. They're returning to the original model. They're holding serious, uh, serious investigation and hearings. They're giving an opportunity for the president to respond. Uh, I do believe there is ample evidence here for a, a an impeachment inquiry. I know that the media went crazy when I said, well, I, I don't believe that there's evidence to impeach right now. But I noted that's the point of an impeachment inquiry. The whole point of that hearing was, is there sufficient evidence for an impeachment inquiry? And the answer is most obviously yes, that there is potential impeachment articles here. In fact, I suggested four. And you have to establish if the evidence will sort of close those circles. I think they have gone to a great extent in closing those circles there. I think they still have a little more work to do. Uh, but what the House committees, uh, particularly oversight, has revealed is deeply disturbing. And I think that they have to complete that work. Yeah, I, I did not. I, I actually watched your testimony and then I saw the media reaction and I, I thought to myself, I mean, the threshold for like continuing to look at something is not especially high. The threshold to indict someone or impeach someone is higher. But to continue investigating, I just I, I, I missed that. All right. I got two things I want to ask you, and I hope the rest of my audience I hope they care about these two, but there are two things I'm dying to ask you because you're a really, really busy guy. You're a law professor. You're on television. You're a writer. Do you still practice law and how do you decide which cases? Because I don't see you taking like speeding cases or simple possession of marijuana. They got to be big cases. And how do you have the time to do it? I do take cases and I have the benefit of being able to pick and choose on cases that I think have uh, significant constitutional issues. And uh, that that's a great privilege and luxury uh, because I teach and have these other uh, jobs. And so I tend to look at cases that I think can create a good precedent. 
And, you know, they come around. I mean, the problem is not a lack of cases. It's a lack of time. Uh, The problem these days is I've been called a lot to testify, which I consider as important as litigating. And so um, I often those tend to uh, take up a lot of time. In in some ways, I've never gotten down to the trick of submitting, as as you know, as a former uh, chair, a member of, of Congress, that a lot of witnesses will put in just two pages of testimony, three pages of testimony. I've never gotten that trick because as an academic, I feel like every time I testify, I have to give a complete account of where I'm coming from. And it's it's crazy because I, I end up writing far more than I should. Uh, but uh, as an academic, I think that's one of the the penalties of being an academic is you really can't just parachute in, give two pages on a tough issue and and say, you know, call me in the morning. The other peril of being an academic and and appearing before Congress is unless a lot has changed, they don't really compensate you for your for your testifying time or the I mean, I think that's what we call pro bono. All right. Here's what I I've got. I'm going to let you go, but I want you. I mean, I think that our justice system is is kind of the last best hope for keeping us together. And so I am always interested. I I hate when it's politicized. I'm always interested in how it can be improved. What would you do if you were in charge of revamping our criminal justice system, making every pocket of the American family, people of good conscience, respect it? What changes would you make? Frankly, I was hoping that Merrick Garland would be that guy uh, that could bridge these differences. I supported his nomination. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, He had a good reputation as an appellate judge, as someone who was moderate, who would, I mean, he's sort of moderate left, but he was someone who could forge coalitions. He has, in my view, uh, just been sort of absent without leave as attorney general. I mean, every time that he could have restored public trust in his department, he failed to do so. And uh, that includes a lot of steps that he could have taken. You know, he he's he's avoided uh, appointing a special counsel. To look at the Biden influence peddling scandal. He only recently appointed a special counsel to look at. Uh, uh, Hunter Biden's, uh, uh, I'd say the the Biden uh, uh, document issue, and he has kept the ongoing investigation from Delaware, which shows, in my view, great manipulation. The problem now is that his department, the Department of Justice, is now at one of its lowest levels of trust in the history of the department. It's far lower than his predecessor, uh, Bill Barr. And the only way to restore that is the one thing that they have never been willing to to offer, and that is true transparency, to open up the Department of Justice, fully investigate what has happened in these cases, drop the privilege claims, just open the books uh, and that's something I doubt Garland will do. But I think that a future administration has to do something. You know, you cannot have a, a, a legal system without the trust of the American people. And you see that in a recent poll tray, which showed that 
Uh, a very about about the same percentage of Trump and Biden supporters now believe that the other side are enemies of the republic and that violence is warranted. And about a quarter of both parties believe that we should consider other systems of government. That's a crisis of faith. It's the one thing that no constitutional system can do without. You can do without everything in a constitutional system except the faith of the governed. And we're, we're losing that. And so I think the first step is to to assure the public that the Department of Justice will be an honest broker again. And that requires opening up every door, every window and every file. I share your concern. Um, I saw that polling. Um, It takes a lot to surprise me. I was surprised that so many of our fellow citizens were open to another form of government. And I remain hopeful that it is the justice system, which people are welcome to say, I didn't like the decision, but I respect it. So I said I had no more questions, but but you raised one that I've got to ask before we go. So I want you to assume, let's assume, I'll pick on two of my friends, that Tim Scott one day is the president of the United States and John Ratcliffe is his attorney general. I think it is entirely appropriate for Tim to say, look, I ran on a get tough on violent crime. So I want you to prioritize that. I don't know that it is appropriate. Well, in fact, I know it's not. Terms like wingman, go after my enemies, reward my friends. What is the right role between a president and the attorney general to recapture that public trust? Well, first of all, I think that attorney general has to recognize that the president of the United States is the one with the constituency. It is true that Department of Justice has to be independent, but it is the president who sets policies for Department of Justice. Much of what an attorney general does is prioritize what his department will do. That comes from the president of the United States not the attorney general. And if the president of the United States, in this case, President Scott says, I want to get tough on crime, an attorney general is supposed to carry out those wishes. And where you are expected to resist the president is when he's asking you to do something unethical or unlawful. I was a very big critic of Sally Yates, who was the acting attorney general for just a few days uh, after President Trump Uh, was elected. And uh, he was pushing the immigration uh, uh, orders. And she basically told the entire department to stand down and not assist uh, the new president. I wrote a column saying that was one of the most outrageous things I have seen in my career, because you can disagree with the president's immigration policy, but in orders, But they were arguably constitutional. And I said at the time, I thought that ultimately, while there had to be some nits worked out, there's going to have to be some changes. Overall, the Supreme Court would likely find with Trump. And it did. And yet Yates is still lionized uh, as a heroine. Uh, for taking that stance for just a, a, like literally a couple of days before she was leaving the Department of Justice. Um, I considered it an unethical act by her uh, to tell a department not to assist a president when it was not by any means clear that, that his order was unconstitutional. You, you, The system only works when all of the lawyers can argue these cases in court. What she was doing was impeding that process. I hope that we get back, Professor, to the there. There's an old story. You're more familiar with it, I'm sure, than I am. I just know I, I can't quote the Latin, but the translation is may justice be done, though the heavens fall. I just I wish we could get back 
to more of a separation between justice and politics. I realize, in fact, I introduced you as someone who sees the intersection and sometimes it becomes a collision. Politics tends to ruin almost everything it comes in contact with, including the Department of Justice. Thank you for being an academic that the rest of us can understand, which is a gift. I mean, I had some con law professors. I still have no idea what they're talking about. That was 30 years ago. I don't <laughs> I don't know what the younger abstention doctrine is. I, I, I never learned it. But I got a sneaking suspicion if you were teaching me, I might actually know what the Pullman and younger abstention doctrines were. <laughs> so thank That's you. Very that. kind of you, Trey. Thank you so much. It's a gift, and we look forward to talking to you soon and reading your columns. Where can people find you? I know that you write. I see an op-ed on the Fox website from you with with regularity. Where else can people find you? Well, I also write for The Hill and The Messenger and, and The New York Post. Good Lord. Do you still teach? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say that they're all good pieces, but I do, I do file on time. <laughs> Professor Jonathan Turley, thank you so much. Take care, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. Thank you, Professor. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.